Amen. Thanks, Brian. Definitely Sinners Saved by Grace, and that is the title of the sermon series we're on. It is God's grace and His beautiful grace. We are sinners. We do nothing to deserve, to earn, to merit, to contribute to our salvation. It is purely by the grace of God, and we are saved by His mercy. Uh, with that said, thanks for being here tonight. It is the 4th of July weekend, uh, historically an extremely low-attended uh, Sunday. If 4th of July falls on a weekend, and it was this morning as well, as I preached here at Northview this morning, uh, about half the crowd. So appreciate you being here tonight. And uh, we, just a quick uh, summary. We only have a, we'll be here next Sunday night. Uh, the following Sunday night, uh, July 19th, we'll be at the school, the Pecan Creek Elementary School, We'll return here for one more, and, uh, and then that is it. We're going to be, all, uh, starting in August, at the elementary school, the Pecan Creek Elementary School, every uh, Sunday. We'll be there for three 5 o'clock times, and then August 23rd is the launch, and we believe every system will be in place by then, all guns blazing, everything firing, ready to go by August 23rd. So uh, keep praying, and uh, keep, keep spreading the word, keep inviting and uh, let's, I'm excited about it. I'm very, 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 just extremely excited about all that this fall is bringing and, and, and new visitors and new people and the harvest that is there. So, and we have a wonderful group that has, has decided to help start this. So it, it, just keep it in your mind, keep it in your prayers, and uh, let's keep forging ahead. Only, only a few weeks left. But anyway, let's get going. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 is where we find ourselves today. We were... Over in Ephesians chapter 3, just last week, where we looked at, looked at how he challenges us to, to not be immature, but to begin to grow, to be stronger, to even pray for this spiritual strength that we need. Being a Christian uh, is not just, now I'm saved, that's it, I'm done, I have my fire insurance, I'm not going to hell anymore. That's not what it's all about. It is saved, yes. God has called you to salvation, but now he has also called you to live a holy life and to grow stronger and to resist temptation and to pursue him more. And that is a lifelong process that is never complete until your final glorification before God Almighty. So yes, if you're saved, if your belief is in Christ, in that gospel, then you are saved. But that's not the end. We're called upon now to grow, to grow stronger spiritually. Well, let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll read through verse 16 today. Then we'll go back through and look at it in a little bit more detail. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord... Urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge 
of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, whether speaking in the truth, in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that builds itself up in love. Let's pray. God, open our hearts, open our mind, open our eyes to see clearly the word that we are studying tonight. May we be moved, may we be changed by it, may we be edified by it, may we be equipped for this word. May it indeed cause us to mature, cause us to grow stronger in the knowledge of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's go back to verse 1. Therefore, prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have received. Of course, we know that Paul is writing this from prison. We've already covered that. He was a prisoner for the Lord. He spent over six years in prison. uh, Extreme persecutions throughout his Christian life. All to get the gospel message out. But look at this. He, He challenges them. He urges them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have received. I simply titled this sermon, Your Life Should Reflect Your Salvation. It's it's such a great little sentence here uh, to write down, to put it on your mirror, to put it on your refrigerator, to highlight in your Bible as you come back through the book of Ephesians. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have received. Obviously, we know the book of Ephesians is written to the believers. In Ephesians chapter 1, he addresses the saints. There are no specific saints in the world, and only a few elite Christians achieve that. Not at all. Every time the saints are referred to in the Bible, it is all of us. We are saints. Our belief is in Christ. We have been sanctified by him, set apart by him. We are made holy by Christ's own righteousness, and we are the saints. So, the book of Ephesians is written... To believers, to the saints, to those who are Christians, to those who have been called by God. Now, this calling is is from God, is a supernatural calling where he draws us to him for his uh, salvation. And this calling is, 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 he initiates it and it is completed. Uh, We look at Romans 8 to 30. I'll just quote that one here from you, for you. I don't think I have it on the screen. But it says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And I go back to Romans 8 to show you this, that once he calls, he completes the whole process. He calls them, and he also justifies them. That is to make right before the eyes of God. We get Christ's righteousness. And 830 also says those whom he justified, he also glorifies. So this is what we possess. If you are a believer, then you should live in such a way that you know this, that Christ has called you not only for salvation, but he has, he has promised everything ahead of time. That We know that we will spend eternity with him in heaven. This glorification process, he's given you Christ's own righteousness. So his point here is if this calling is yours, if you're a believer, then then live in the light of this calling. Live a holy life. 
There should be something different about you. You are to be set apart from the world that we live in. Not conformed to this world, right? But transformed out of it. That people should be able to see something different in your walk, the way you live, the way you talk, the whatever you text, whatever you say, the things that you do. There should be something different about you. People should take notice of your steps, of the way that you walk. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, 18 through 19, in a very similar way, he says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So this should change everything. We were at one time, as Ephesians 2 says, set on the here and now. Only this life. Hey, give me all the pleasure I can get here. Uh, The natural state of man is hedonism. It is pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. Whatever I want out of life, that's what I deserve. And you live for here and now, and that's all there is to it. But all of a sudden, uh, we have been saved. We believe in Christ for our salvation. We've been called by God. And now everything should change. Because now we don't just live for ourselves. We put ourselves second, third, fourth, whatever. And we live for Him now. In the light of everything that is going to be this eternal home that we have. We're not citizens here. We're visitors. We're vagabonds passing through on to our eternal home. So it should change everything. Uh, Look, I believe it's on the screen behind me, but Colossians 1, verses 9 through 10. Paul says something very similar. He says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Verse 10, look closely on the screen there or in your Bible. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So here he tells them, yes, be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He reiterates the same point over here in Colossians, though. That is, if you have been called, live in the light of that. This should be drastic. This should be a major change in your life. Uh, A lot of examples come to mind, but very quickly, I remember my brother. Long story, I will try to make short, but he had been witnessing to his neighbor for years. Rejection, rejection, rejection. His neighbor was drinking till he would get completely drunk, completely wasted every night cussing nonstop, but he would always invite my brother, who he knew as a pastor, over to join him, you know? And my brother would go over there, and he'd make sure he had something to drink that was obvious to everyone. It was not alcohol, and he'd take a Diet Coke or whatever and, and go over there every now and then to just, just to talk to them and, and to represent Christ. And everyone left one night, and the guy finally began to ask my brother a little bit more about 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 what he does and what he believes. And my brother was able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, that in him and what he's done on the cross, we can have forgiveness of sins. And this guy, wild, wild, crazy man, was saved. And the next morning, about 10 o'clock, my brother gets a big knock on the door. The guy's hitting as hard as he can. My brother opens the door and says, yeah, 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 what's wrong? What's wrong? You okay? He says, what did you do to me? What have you done to me? And my brother says, what, what, what happened? He says, I woke up this morning I started to cuss just like I always do, and it hurt so bad. I didn't want to do it anymore. And it was just this this clear example that there is a newness of life now that we should have. 
And it doesn't feel good to do the things that we used to do. That sin now feels bad. And we want to put it away. We want to walk in a different way now. We want to have a different way of living now. It's not just that we desire it, but the Holy Spirit inside of us desires it as well. And we do bad now, we, we feel convicted. There should be a difference in the way that we live. A, a holy lifestyle. Alright, so that's what he's talking about here. First Thessalonians 2.12 in a similar way. He says, we exhorted each other each one of you, and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So there is to be a difference in the way that we live in the world around us. The Ephesians were called by God for salvation, and they were also, as we are, called out, the ecclesia, the fancy word there is, to be drawn out for his purpose, that our life now is for him. Uh, Romans tells us we give him our life now as a living sacrifice. It is our life given to him. Work us, God. Do whatever you would have us to do. We are your servants. So obviously we're living for him now, not for ourselves. Uh, Quick question. What does your walk tell others about you? What does your walk tell others about you? Now this doesn't just mean is there a a skip in your step. You're always walking around happy. But, but your life in general, your lifestyle, and, and how you live your life, what does it tell others? For those who are observing you, and we're always being observed, what does it tell people? Can they tell that you're living in a different way? And I'm, and I'm not confusing that your life uh, shares the gospel with others. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying your life should reflect the gospel truth. That you've been saved, you've been rescued, you're on your way to heaven, and, and you desire to live a life pleasing to God. So there should be a difference in your life. Um, next question, what does this new walk look like? What does this new way of walking look like? Paul emphasizes it here in Thessalonians. He emphasizes it in Colossians. emphasizes it in Ephesians as well. Uh, Romans as well. He keeps emphasizing this new life, this new walk, and what it looks like. And if you look at Ephesians, the first few chapters are very doctrinal. They're dealing with theology. They're dealing with doctrine. And the next part of this, from 4 on is going to really kind of, kind of show us what this way of walking looks like now. Now that we are saved, now that we're called to be a people set apart for God's service, what does that exactly look like? And here in verse 2 and 3, he gives us a sample. Now that we should, we're saved, we're supposed to walk in a different way, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, verse 2 and 3, with all humility... And gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, if you read your Bible, I'm sure you do, and quite often. I've read over this many times as well. But we need to pause right here and look at each one of these characteristics that we, as believers, are supposed to have upon us. Humility. Uh, equals, you might say, a lowliness. Putting God first and me second was very popular a few years ago with the I Am Second movement. All the billboards that were out and different movie stars and singers that would share their testimony of how God is first now and then they are second. And then there was kind of a little bit of animosity towards the I Am Second movement because others uh, were realizing that actually we should not be second that we should be below that. Like our interest should not be God first, me second, but it should be God first, others, 
and then me third or on down the list here. But this is part of that humility. It is putting God's, God's desire for your life first, even above yours. It's putting the needs of others above yours and then looking to your needs. A humble person is slow to insist on his or her rights and thinks of others first. This is the opposite mindset of our natural state. And I will say this, all of these points in general are the opposite of what our sinful nature desires. So when you see humility, just know that this is not just natural. We're all not just natural, humble people. We, our sinful nature usually desires the opposite of such a thing. So it is a battle. But we as believers need these characteristics to be shown they should exemplify our lives. The next one he says here is gentleness. Uh, meekness, your Bible might say. It is not weakness, but it is power under control. Christ is referred to as being meek. He's referred to as being gentle, but yet he had ultimate power. He could calm a storm. He could raise the dead. He could heal the, heal the ones who are lame, who are blind, who are deaf. He could cast out demons. He could cast out a legion of demons. He could do anything he desired, but yet he was humble. Yet, yet he was gentle. Yet he was meek. Yet he laid himself on the cross and allowed his own creation to crucify him on that cross. He allowed his own creation to put a crown of thorns on his head. He allowed his own creation to beat him across the back, even though he had supreme power. So our ultimate example on this gentleness is Jesus Christ himself, who, being in very nature God, could have done anything. He could have called the angels right then. He could have punished everyone right then. He could have sent everyone to hell right then. He could have done whatever he wanted to do. He is God. But his gentleness is so extreme that he allowed his own creation to crucify him so that you and I could be saved. So we as Christians, as with Christ as our model, need to exemplify humility and gentleness. Next, he mentions patience here. Uh, for the definition here, I've put persevering in the face of delay or provocation or difficulty without acting negativity, negatively. Uh, patience is the level of endurance one can take before negatively reacting. I'm going to say that one more time. Patience is the level of endurance one can take before negatively reacting. Uh, this is something, as all of these, that we all need to work on. We are all impatient. Uh, we are impatient with some people more than others, uh, certain family members or sisters, brothers, etc., more than others. Uh, but we are called to be patient. That whoever is in our life, whatever relationship we have, whether it's with them at work, your boss, your employee, people underneath you at work, uh, your own family members, your parents, your children as well, that we should be more patient now because we're walking in a way that is worthy of the calling we have received. Uh, this next one he says, uh, bear with one another in love. I like this because it is bearing with one another in love. Uh, the point of this is it's not easy to always love everybody and to love everyone as we should. He says, bear with one another. What's that mean? It, it means it's going against your flesh. It's going against your desire. You're, you're wanting not to love this person as God has called you to, but you do. 
and you should, and you're obeyed to. It's not just, our love should not just be based on whether we feel like loving our spouses or not, or we feel like loving our children or not, or feel like acting in a loving way to our neighbors and fellow man. But we do it because we are commanded to. And let's be truthful, it is not easy to put up with others And it never has been. The Ephesians, now as Christians, were to improve in this area. And we should improve in this area as well. Bearing with, knowing. It is tough. This this word, this word's bearing with means it's going to be tough sometimes. But we do it uh, in love because Christ has died for our sins and has saved us and called us to him. Uh, The next little little characteristic, you might say, that we are to have on us is eager to stay unified in peace. Verse 3, that we desire and should desire to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. A desire to keep the peace that is strong, so strong, that you look over offenses. A non-believer, if you do the slightest thing to, to irritate them, to offend them, uh, is usually extremely fast to respond, extremely quick to get angry and to break the peace. But we as believers, since we have been rescued, since we have been saved, uh, since we have peace now with God, should be quick to forgive and let the offense slide. We don't have to react every single time we are offended. Um, is the question, is, the natural, is it natural for you to stay unified and to keep the peace. And for most people, honestly, it, most people it's not. If you've been a believer some time, you've been working on these characteristics, working on these attributes, and hopefully you're becoming a more mature believer. The more mature you come, the more these characteristics become part of who you are. But it is a sanctification process, a constant process of becoming holier. And looking back on these, make a list of these, look at these, dwell on these, Am I humble? Am I gentle? Am I patient? Am I bearing with others in love? Do I have a desire to keep the peace or am I quick to respond? And, and how can I get better at these? This is something that we should be exemplifying. Um, as a Christian, we should be eager to keep the peace and definitely not cause trouble, but also be able to look over an offense. So if we look at all these together one more time, we have humility. Gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, and maintains peace. Question, why should we do these things? Why do we have to? It kind of hurts us a little bit to to put on these characteristics. But we do it because this is what walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called looks like. This should be us because God has commanded us to live in such a way. Verse 4, let's continue on. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Earlier in Ephesians, uh, the, the emphasis was on the two, now we, two groups divided the wall of partition that divided them. They had the 12 tribes of Israel, the Jews, and we had the Gentiles, every non-Jewish person. But now that wall of division, partition had come down and that we are now unified, that we are all children of Abraham. Even if we are not genetically, we are by faith and that we have this 
unity that supersedes everything else that is different. So within the body of Christ, this unity supersedes. It connects us on a level that the world has no idea what we're talking about. That we can come into this building, different hobbies, different likes, different jobs, different incomes, all kinds of different different differences, kids and no kids, or raising grandkids, or raising little kids, all the differences where the world will say, oh, you need to put your group together over here. No, you got this hobby. You need to hang out with this kind of people. But the church comes together, and we are one. Because we have been united by God. We have the same one Holy Spirit. We have one God the Father. We have one Christ who is our Savior. We have this unity that brings us all together as one, the body of Christ. So he emphasizes this point here again that we are one. Verse 8. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives... And he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. All right, let me give you the wrong interpretation of this first, and then we'll look back at it with the right lenses on. But the wrong interpretation of this, some have misconstrued this, that Christ actually in ascending and descending that Christ actually went to hell, defeated Satan, and then rose from the dead. That is not what this passage is teaching at all, but oftentimes it is cited to teach such a thing. So that, that is not here, okay? That is not in the text. Uh, he's quoting from Psalm 68, and, and we can look at that, and we can look at the context that is here. We can look at, at other scripture as well. We read scripture in the light of other scripture, and that's not what is going on here. The right interpretation would be that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, uh, descended, lowered himself, humble, humbled himself to the earth, the incarnation is what we call that, that putting on of flesh, that he has always been, always will be. He is not a creation of God. As John 1.1 tells us, he is God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created by him and for him. He is God, but always, forever, eternal, but that he puts on flesh, this incarnation. He descends to the lower earthly regions this earth he walks amongst us he lives as a human he faces death he dies he rises from the dead on the third day after paying for the sins of all believers everywhere for all time and then he ascends back into heaven so this passage here is talking about that that he has ascended back into heaven and now that He has ascended back into heaven. If we recall Daniel chapter 7, beautiful passage, where he is now, Daniel sees one like the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days. And it's it's what we see on the other end of the clouds. Remember the book of Acts, they're looking up, and they're looking up, and Jesus ascends back into heaven, and the angels come down, like, what are you looking at? You know, go, go tell everybody what's happened. And they're just shocked, mesmerized, what's going on? And, and then in Daniel chapter 7, we see kind of the other end of this, the other side of the clouds, where Daniel sees there in the clouds came one like the Son of Man, uh, approaching the Ancient of Days. Why was this such a big deal? Because here you have a man, one like the Son of Man. He lets us know that something's different. But here you have the eternal Son of God who put on flesh, 
now taking this human form to heaven and going before the ancient of days. No man can stand before God. No person can be in front of God in all of his glory and stand to be there. But here you have in Daniel chapter 7, one, uh, this, this one like a son of man. Jesus' favorite term for himself is son of man. Coming before the ancient of days and all authority, all power, everything, all rule is given to him. So that is what's happening here. And in context, he's saying that the one who has descended has now ascended into heaven. But he also connects this, this connectivity that he's ascended into heaven and there is this gifting. If you look back up here at verse 8, he quotes directly from Psalms. But he says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. So he sets us free, and, and the, the parallel, the connection here, is kind of what you would think of, of a king, an earthly king who has come in, who has dominated, who has won, and he sets his captives free, and he gives the spoils, he gives the riches to those who are with him, and that is us. That's why we can live in this manner, because we have God's Holy Spirit within us, and he gives gifts to us who are believers. He gives us the Holy Spirit that convicts us and also comforts us, gives us strength to fortify us, to live in such a way. And he also provides uh, people in our lives as well. He provides you the church. He provides you other people within that church to help you as well. Look at verse, uh, let's go on to, uh, go on to verse 11. And he gave, look what he gives. So he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So if we remember, and I'm not going to go deep into this, it's beyond the context of today's sermon, but that Jesus ascends back into heaven, and then he sends the Holy Spirit. And there on the day of Pentecost, 10 days after he had risen from the dead, on the 50th day, Pentecost, he, he sends the Holy Spirit. And it's, it's this signal that he has arrived, he has received all authority, all power, and he sends the Holy Spirit to the believers. And he equips the believers. The apostles then, we see, go about and they are equipped to do the work of God. He gives us the prophets, the, the, the ones who, who can speak forth the word of God, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Why does he do this? It's part of the gifting to the body of Christ. And that, this is why we always say that you cannot be an independent, isolated Christian. If you think you can just sit home, read your Bible, pray, and get everything you need, you're mistaken. Because God has gifted the body of Christ, the church, with specific people who God calls to help equip the believers. A quick question I put down here is, what role should I be filling in your life according to this passage that we just read? And it's very easy. The answer is, uh, pastor is called by God to equip others for the work of ministry. Uh, what do people today expect out of their pastor when they go to church on Sunday? Uh, just in general, people that you know of, people that you hear of, people that are your friends. What do they expect of a pastor when they go to church on Sunday? Uh, do they expect comedy? Do they expect entertainment? Do they expect a feel-good message? Or... Do they go to get equipped by the Word of God? Is there an expectation to, I need to go to church, 
not just to go to church and see what kind of cool story uh, the pastor is going to share, what kind of joke he's going to share, but I need to go so that I can be equipped to better serve God so that we, our body of Christ, our church, can be built up. And this is, should be the expectation as we come to church to hear the Word of God taught and from up here or from our discipleship time as well. We come to church to glorify God, to worship God, and to be better equipped to serve Him so that our walk is different than the world around us. Constantly needing to be equipped, constantly needing to dwell on God's Word. Verse 13, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. All right, this is the third time in just the last few weeks here, as we've looked at the book of Ephesians, that this statement has come up of increasing in the knowledge of, to know better. Uh, the first one was know what is the hope to which he has called you, Ephesians 1.18. The second one was know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, Ephesians 3.19. And then here today in verse 13, we see know the Son of God. So let me read this verse 13 one more time. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul encourages these believers to continue to increase in knowledge. Any of you who have been saved for some time at all, you know that that. We are to continue to increase, to, to bask in, to know and to increase what is this great love that God has bestowed upon me, that nothing can separate me from his love. We looked at that a while back in Romans 8. Nothing in the past, nothing in the present, nothing in the future, angels nor demons nor powers anywhere, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And when you get your mind around that, wow, you know, I've been saved by grace I've been saved by believing in Christ as my Savior. And, and nothing can separate. It's just an ever-increasing. And we never get to the end of God's love. Uh, we're supposed to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That Ephesians 3.19. Know what is the hope to which you've been called. Just contemplating that and thinking on that. That God has rescued you. He has saved you. We're living life in a different way now. And also where this life is going. We have no fear of death. No fear of judgment. We're the children of God and that we'll be with him for all of eternity. Getting our minds around that, knowing that, increasing in the knowledge of that. And here, we're called to increase in the knowledge of the Son of God. Uh, I preached this morning and taught last week on this topic that our gospel, what we believe, has to be centered around the Son of God. If, if you remove that aspect from the gospel that we believe, you've just removed the core ingredient to the gospel. And if you say, hey, here, here's Jesus. He was a good guy that lived and gave us a good example. And then you remove the fact that he is also the son of God out of it. You've given a gospel that doesn't do anything. But we as believers, we, we, we cherish the fact that the son of God lived a life that we couldn't live. So we could get his record. He died on the cross to take our sins, our record, to put it on the cross. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And that the Son of God died for our sins, rescued us, saved us, uh, paid for our sins, 
rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, will be the final judge, and we have no fear. Because the Son of God is the very one who paid the price for our sin. Anyway, the point of this is, is to, to know the hope, know the love of Christ, know the Son of God. All these are meant to be ever-increasing. You never stop knowing the Word of God, growing in the Word of God, growing in the knowledge of His love, and growing in the knowledge of who the Son of God is. And this passage also is encouraging us to, to know, know equals grow. You want to grow in your faith. It's not some metaphysical thing where you contemplate your belly button and you get in a yoga position. That does nothing, all right? Uh, there's nothing like... If you want to grow stronger spiritually, you know God's Word better. That this is what we do. We come here. We study God's Word. We dwell on God's Word. We equip each other by studying and learning God's revealed Word to us. We don't go somewhere and isolate ourselves in a monastery somewhere as they used to do and try to get spiritual enlightenment. No. We, we grow in our faith by knowing more and more and increasing our knowledge of who God is in His love and in His Son. That we will be mature. Verse 13 says... The second part there, that we are to grow in this and to become mature. The whole thing in verse 13 says, Until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. In other words, stop being a baby. It is, is this, we were saved, now we are to grow. Grow up in your faith and become stronger, uh, self-supportive. Be, be strong in the Word of God, right? Don't stay a baby forever. First Peter 2.1 says, Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up in your salvation. There should be a process of growing in your spiritual life. You should look back. Where were you at five years ago, spiritually? If you could chart your spiritual course, uh, has there been progressive growth? Are you on your way to, to leaving baby, to leaving uh, puberty years and, and, and adolescence, to maturity in spiritual realm as far as increasing in the knowledge of God, putting sin away, pursuing Christ more? Or are you, were you saved and then it went downhill? Like you, you're not growing. What, what does the spiritual chart look like? It should be ever increasing. And it's a struggle. It's work. It's manual labor. Increasing, increasing. Growing stronger in the Lord. Um, a question here, does a person's age automatically make them a mature Christian? Obviously not. Is it possible for a teenager to be more spiritually mature than a parent? It definitely could be. Uh, age does not have to do with the maturity of a believer. Ideally, if everything was working the way it should be, that the longer you have been saved the more mature of a believer you are. But it is not necessarily the case. So we can't just look at a person's age and say, well, this person is 80 years old, they are a believer. Obviously, they are very mature, and I should listen to them. You may, you may. But maturity is not based on age. It doesn't go exactly with our age. If you want to mature in the faith... We continue to know God and to dwell on Him and increase in the knowledge of who He is. Uh, verse 15. Oh, let me stop before I go any further here. Uh, verse 14. So that we may no longer be children. All right, we're growing up. But what are children? Spiritual children. Look at this. Tossed to and fro 
by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. We are on our way to Florida at the end of this week. I'm going there actually tonight doing some uh, my last two courses for my doctorate. And uh, family will be joining me, and we have a, we'll go to the beach there in Florida. And I know exactly what it's like, and you know as well, for a child to be tossed to and fro by the waves. Uh, you put your kid in the waves, and you get tossed to and fro. One of the funniest things that ever happened to my wife and I, we were in Hawaii years ago, and the waves were on the, on the, on the side where all the surfing is going on, on the big island there, or the Oahu, and the waves were coming in at 10 feet. And I'd never seen waves like this, and it was just huge and massive. I just wanted to experience it. And I just stood out in the water and braced with everything I could. I mean, you know, I was a 250-pound bodybuilder in the middle of my heyday, big, strong dude. And this 10-foot-tall wave comes in, and it was, just, it was just complete chaos to my body. I was just tumbling everywhere and buried in the sand. And Felicia's up there about 20 feet, and she is just on the ground dying laughing. And finally the waves stop, and I'm, I'm thrown so far away, and there's sand everywhere. There's sand under my eyelids. I mean, it just peeled them back. There's so much force. And I, was, I was tossed to and fro. But you imagine a child in that, right? You're just tossed to and fro and no control because the waves are coming in. And that's the way it is spiritually when we are young. So we want to get out of that as fast as we can. We want to grow up spiritually. That's why we as adults want our children in church, uh, hearing the Word of God, being taught uh, in anything that we have, growing up fast in the knowledge of the Word of God feeding them the Word of God at home, praying with our families at home. We want to constantly be growing, growing, growing ourselves and our families as well so that we're not tossed about. And this isn't a physical tossing about, just as it's not a, a um, talking about physically growing up, but it says we're tossed about, children are, young people, young spiritually, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. By every wind of doctrine, it said. So it is not knowing what we believe. Because we don't know the Word of God. We haven't been dwelling on the Word of God. We haven't been made disciples. Uh, so no, we're just tossed to and fro whatever we want to believe. And we find this often with even adult Christians. That they just base their beliefs on what they feel. You know, I feel that God like this. Now, even with the homosexual decision that came out just the last week, uh, you know, some, many people profess Christians. Well, I feel that it's okay because, you know, they love each other and that should be okay. And, and well, if you're basing uh, whatever we believe off of what you have in your head, I see your point. But if we're basing what we believe off the revealed word of God, then that is still sin. You see, my point is, is young people spiritually are just tossed to and fro, whatever they feel like they believe or whatever someone else over here says. But we as mature believers, where do we go to get grounded so we're not knocked down by the waves, the Word of God? So this is what we study. This is what grows us and matures us. Let's move on. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. Again, this, this nourishment, this nurture, the growing up, maturing, grow up. In every way, into him who is the head, into Christ. 
So we are continue to emphasize and, and to check ourselves and make sure we're not being spiritual infants, not being spiritual babes in every way. You and I both have met people who are spiritually mature, maybe doctrinally. They know the Word of God, but as far as patience, gentleness, humility, maybe they're spiritual infants. They're not bearing with one another in love. Here he challenges to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Verse 16 from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We are part of one body, the body of Christ. It takes every part of this body working together for it to function properly. This is why a Christian should not try to function by themselves, isolated. Each believer has been gifted. Christ has ascended, he has given gifts to men, and each believer has been gifted uniquely to function in a very specific way to benefit a, the, the whole body. I mean, you look at our church now, we have a small church uh, that's just beginning, but you see even within this, I'll look over there and see, see the band. And I see what they're doing. I see what Brian and Katie and Carla and Don and, 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 and Tyler over here. And, and I see Jerry. It's just amazing to watch them. I could not do that. Okay? I, I could not get over there and do that. That is not my gifting at all. But it's really neat to see how God equips a church. How God sends people to help a church, to help with children's ministry, to help in a nursery, to help move chairs, to help make coffee, to, to help with finances. It's really amazing to see on this side of it, as we start this church, how God begins to call people and to equip this body of believers that we have. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing to see. And this is what is happening here. He's saying that, that we are part of this body. Step up and fulfill your role. All right, so what does, what does your walk look like is the question that he posed here from the beginning. Something he urges us to do, walk in this way. Are there some areas that need to be improved? Well, absolutely. If you don't think you need anything improved, just ask your spouse. I'm sure they will tell you, right? We know, though, that we all have areas of improvement that we need to improve upon. And that we are called as Christians to be analytical, introspective, analyze ourselves find those weaknesses don't hide them don't conceal them but confess them and repent and and pray for strength in these areas Uh, your walk not only affects you but as he ties all this together here in ephesians it affects the body of christ as well you're part of a church your walk affects the church our church is part of the ultimate body of christ and our witness affects it as well So that your walk is not just about you. It affects your family. It affects those around you, uh, the people at your work, the people at your school. It affects our church as well. So as you begin to walk stronger, we begin to walk stronger as well. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for letting us study your word, to bask in your word today. It is beautiful. I pray that... We have been equipped today as we've studied your word. Help us to walk in a way that is worthy of the calling to which we have received. You have called us to salvation. We know that you will bring this salvation to completion in our glorification. We will be in heaven with you for all of eternity. God, help us to live holy lives. To put the sin away that so easily entangles and grabs us as we run this race. Help us to put it away. 
Help us to focus on you. I pray, God, for all of us as we've heard this message tonight. If there's any area here that we're dealing with, and all of us are, uh, put it upon our heart that we would walk in a way that exemplifies what you have done for us. That we would walk in a way that shows the light of the world to others. They can see by the cadence in our step, the way we walk, that there's definitely something different about them. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand let's worship the one who has saved us and rescued us, who has called us to him. <laughs>